0: Hey there, and thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. It's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the founders, the farmers, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of agriculture. First, I uh, want to start off by acknowledging the elephant in the room. I'm recording this as I'm sort of self-quarantining. If you're listening to this around the time it's published, which is late in March 2020, you're most likely either quarantined yourself or socially distancing yourself, as they say, to help stop the spread of coronavirus. We've seen dramatic drops in our economic and agricultural markets, and the effects of this will probably be felt for I'm guessing a very long time. So I just want to encourage all of you that are listening to join me in trying to remain positive and focused on building a better future for agriculture and, and beyond. Feel free if, if you'd like to reach out to me directly, if I can help you or support you in any way, or uh, if you just want to chat really right now, we're all kind of <laughs> hanging out and trying to figure all this stuff out. My email address is tim at com, and I'm happy to make time for you. All right, moving on to the topic of our show today, another, I guess you could call it, looming crisis that hopefully we never experience the catastrophic effects of, which is water scarcity. Many key agricultural areas, such as the western U.S., rely heavily on irrigation to produce crops. That irrigation comes either from surface water, so like rivers or canals, or groundwater by pumping it out of the ground. The value of that land, that farmland, is tied directly, of course, to the reliability of the water used to grow that crop. How reliable is that irrigation? As many of you know, water issues are a top priority for me on the show, and it's really my number one answer whenever I'm asked the question of what big agricultural issue are we all not talking about enough? Well, our guest on the show today, Chris Peacock, started working on water issues about 20 years ago. Eventually, his work in consulting with water districts and building software to help them leverage data to manage water led him to start his company, Aquaoso. This episode is both a cool ag tech startup with a water twist and an interesting look into water issues in general. He's extremely knowledgeable from those 20 years of experience. I'm going to drop you into the conversation here just as Chris is describing what Aqua Oso does and for whom. Yeah,
1: at the highest level at Aqua, so we help organizations understand the financial impacts of water scarcity on their operations. And we do that through software as a service. We're a cloud provider. All of our software is data enabled. So we gather data, we aggregate that data, we geospatially map that data, and then we help organizations understand the impacts of water scarcity on specific operations all the way down to an individual parcel of land. Most of the work that we do today is focused on the banking space and in particular agricultural bankers. So helping the banks that are lending to farmers understand the underlying water assets that they're collateralizing.
0: Okay. And do do bankers have access to that data as far as, you know, are in a typical loan process, are farmers required to provide them with, you know, their water accessibility?
1: Yeah. So it, it's really interesting as we've been learning with our banking customers, and we have we have about 30 customers now, and we've been in, in commercialization for about 18 months. And what we've learned is historically, the banks have relied on the farmers to provide them with some of the data. Farmers don't always have all of the data and they don't always have accurate records. And so a lot of the times the banks will check on that information. So they'll call water districts, they'll call the states, they'll do their own research And what we found is it would take them 30 to 40 hours to go pull together reports for every single loan. And it would take weeks, if not a month to get some of that information, because they were always relying on third party sources. So we've been able to aggregate all of that information into one place. And our customers are now able to do a very quick search inside of a, basically a map and pull all of that information at one time, instantaneously. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so the pain point you're solving isn't necessarily like running out of water. It's the fact that you have to go round up over weeks, you know, a bunch of information from a bunch of places and you're you're making it instantly accessible to them.
1: Yeah. Our first value proposition is very simple, very clear. We're helping you save time and save money by getting you access to information that you need to make decisions around the loan process. And then the second level of value that we provide our customers are we're actually providing analytics as well across all of that data. So not all lenders are experts in water. And we've been able to to put some analytics on top of all of the data to help our lenders better understand what that data, data means. Think of it like a, a credit score, but for water.
0: Okay, yeah, I like that. Now, on the data side, you know we we toss around the word data because it's a good you know general term meaning all pieces of information. but but what pieces of information do you mean in, in terms of, and you don't have to go through all of them. I'm sure there's several, but what are the most important pieces of information you're needing to to be able to serve your customers in this way?
1: Yeah, so we look at everything from crops being grown on the property we look at historical water deliveries if they're inside of a water district we look at here in california we're looking at the gsas so the groundwater sustainability agencies and the related allocations of water that are coming out of those from a groundwater perspective we're looking at rainfall we're looking at soil types we're looking at snowpack so there's there's 50 different types of things that we're looking at and then feeding that through our system in addition to historical parcel records so who 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 owns the property where are the wells? Where are the water rights? And putting all of that in one place.
0: Yeah, and and when you say feeding it through your system, is it is it like a, a, an AI? You know, an artificial intelligence tool that's going to spit out this FICO score as, as you compared it to?
1: Yeah, like I can get on my soapbox and rant and rave about you know the the power of AI and blockchain chasing a problem, um, or at least looking for a problem to solve. In in our case, many times we're just using really good math and really good statistics to figure out what this stuff means over time. What I will say is we do have machine learning ultimately being built in the background, because as we get more data, things can become smarter. And we're looking at the machine learning, and and we've actually built a lot of algorithms around this, which is if there's data missing, and we have enough data sets that surround it, we can start filling in the data gaps by using the machines to help us figure out what the data probably looks like, so we're able to start making some better decisions. We're also able to model over time what has historically occurred and start to add climate models and other types of models into our system so we can start predicting what might be in the future. So not only is it important for us to understand historical water availability on a property, but what is going to be available in the future. As you think about the lending side in particular, there's annual operating loans. So that's a 12-month window. That's not too hard to figure out. But if you're lending money on a piece of property and it's got a 20 or 30 year lifespan, the predictive elements start to become much more important.
0: Right, and and ultimately the the output to your customer, which in a lot of cases is lenders at, at, at a bank, is going to be a score roughly of how much they should be worried about this credit or this borrower running out of water, essentially.
1: Yeah, I mean the the fundamental question we're answering right now is is there enough water? For this particular piece of land to grow the crops that they want to grow. And so we're helping the lender better understand whether there's enough water or not. And if there's not, we're giving our lending customers the opportunity to have a better, deeper conversation with their borrowers. So not only are we giving them tools to understand, you know, just a simple score to make a decision, but also what are the other things you should be looking at? And what are the types of conversations that you should be having with the borrowers? Which really leads us down the road to, if you look at any of the the credit types of systems that are out there, for your own personal credit, not only can you get access to your own score, you can get access to mitigation tools to your score. What can you do to improve your score? And so we're working on those as well for farmers and for growers so they can better understand what they can do on the farm to improve their own resiliency from a water perspective.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, now I'm sure that in California, this is especially relevant. Are you also working with customers outside of California?
1: We are. So we we started in California. We've got about 30 customers here in the state. We're actively pursuing five new states. So we're moving into Washington, Oregon on the radar. We've got Arizona on the radar, Colorado, and Idaho. All of those states we're actively getting ready to move into. So in some states, we're pretty close to launching. We've already got some early customers in a couple of those states. So we're, this is this is much more than a California issue. What we started to see from a water risk perspective is certainly beyond California and into other Western states and even into the Midwest. As you move a bit further east, the issue becomes a bit different. It's not as much of a water scarcity issue as much of a surplus of water from a flooding right. standpoint.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you got things like drainage tile and other other data points. Yeah, um, exactly. Interesting. Well. So for someone who doesn't live in the Western U.S., I'm going to ask this very broadly and let you take it the direction you want to go. Can you help them as succinctly as possible understand the issue? I, it, yes, we understand water scarcity, but it's a whole lot more complicated than that. So how do you describe that to somebody who doesn't doesn't kind of understand?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really great question. And it's a good way to frame what's actually happening, not just in, in California or in the Western U.S., but around the globe. And what we're seeing more and more of are are extreme weather types of events, whether it's flooding, whether it's drought, whether it's forest fires, all of these things impact the economics of our world. And so at Aquosa, we're, we're really trying to take a closer look at how are those types of events impacting the financial stability of our customers. So in this case, financial institutions, investors, and then across the supply chain of food at a At a global level, we're looking at nearly $450 billion of revenue losses across the food supply system due to water scarcity. And so water scarcity means there's not necessarily enough water for the areas in which we're producing our food. And the ways in which we can combat that are obviously better precision agriculture types of systems, maybe some indoor farming, growing higher value crops, and all of these things are starting to happen. But I think much like any other type of real estate in its simplest form, if there's not enough water to serve the land, the collateral value of the land starts to decrease. Hmm. If there's not enough water to grow the crops, borrowers can't pay their loans back. And I think more importantly, if there's not enough water to grow our crops, it starts to become harder and harder to feed our society. So there, there are huge societal systemic impacts that we're trying to track down through our work in identifying where water risk resides.
0: Yeah. It seems like one of the problems from a high level is just how water is is or is not valued that's a it's a bit of a philosophical sort of water economics question but you know what what are what's your view on that as someone who's dedicated most of their career to to water
1: Yeah I've certainly pondered that philosophically and in, in discussions many times over the last 20 years I even wrote a book not that long ago well I guess it's five years ago now you know ways in which we can accelerate change around water management. A large portion of that was around the valuation of water. And I think like most environmental things, water is undervalued from the standpoint of putting economics on top of it. I think carbon is a really good example of where we've started to move in a direction of putting a dollar amount on, on carbon. We've never really done that on water, and there's there's a couple of reasons for that. One, water's heavy, right? It's, it's expensive to move, and so water is, always going to be a very local component to our economic ecosystem. And while you can move water out of certain areas by virtue of food, like water footprints in food or in clothing or in textiles or mining or oil, the fundamentals of how do you price water becomes really tricky because the value of water is really dependent on how it's being used and where it's being used. The value of water for growing, let's say a high value crop, like a nut, a nut crop, is much different than the value of water going into a row crop like tomatoes, right? Um, So the valuations are very different. And I typically start to move back on the value of water to what is the value of moving that water to the right place at the right point in time, which is really where the discussions should be centered. thinking about how water can actually get to where it needs to go because there's a lot of infrastructure and a lot of energy that needs to be in place to move water to the right places.
0: Well, I'm sure you have a lot of customers that are trying to figure out the new Sustainable Groundwater Management Act passed in California. You mentioned the 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 GSA's uh, earlier in the conversation already, but you've got these local agencies that are required by law to regulate groundwater and to submit these groundwater plans, and I'm sure you probably got a lot of a lot of customers wondering like, "Okay, well, how does this factor in to our lending?" Tell us about that. I guess from from a high level first start about, you know, from those for those outside of California, what is Sigma? And then how that impacts your customers and the way they're doing business?
1: Yeah, for sure. So five years ago, California passed SIGMA, which is the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, and this is really the first time in the state's history that the state decided that we would regulate groundwater because we've had overpumping in many areas. We've had ground ground subsidence in many areas, twenty or thirty feet, really, really significant. And the Central Valley of California, as we all know, is you know the the fruit and basket for for not just the nation, but for the world. And we're talking billions of dollars of revenue from food coming out of the Central Valley. So it's it's really important that we better manage our groundwater resources. And what the state did, rather than at the state level dictate and mandate how much water should or shouldn't be used in any particular groundwater basin, it moved that decision-making capability to smaller agencies. So these are the groundwater sustainability agencies that are being formed across the state And it's essentially 250-ish new agencies being formed across the state of California, made up of everyone from water districts to county managers to large urban planners sitting on the boards of these agencies. And in January, the first round of groundwater sustainability plans were due in the most critically overdrafted areas. And what that really means is these are the areas where we're overdrafting way more water than is being replenished on any given year. And so there was a higher priority date for these agencies to get their plans done. And coincidentally, most of those agencies are in the Central Valley of California, where all of our heavy ag is, is taking place. So when we started AQUO, so GSPs were not in place, the groundwater sustainability plans. The GSAs were just getting formed. and our banking customers and the larger growers were already struggling with trying to keep track of how much water was being delivered at the irrigation district level. And now there's this whole new level of bureaucracy and these new mandates coming into play that are brand new. So all of the the rules are fairly new as well. And all of the GSAs have their own ability to manage groundwater. And all of the rules are a little bit different depending on where you're at. So these plans have just started to come out in draft form. Some of them have gotten to a bit more of a final version. We've actually gone through about 25,000 pages of review so far, going through those plans. We have two water attorneys on the team. We've got some really great interns on the team that study water policy. We've got two third generation farmers on the team. So, what we've been able to do is take those plans and decipher them for our customers and create summary reports. And those reports, include everything from this is what we think the sustainable yield is going to be for this particular area based on the plans So, and then we've got red flag blue flags which are areas of opportunity within those gsa's like groundwater banking water markets following of potential properties and then also the big risks associated with those areas like highly dependent groundwater ecosystems that don't have access to surface water from the bureau or, or some other entity and so those, those plans are now embedded inside of our software so that every time our customers are running reports in those areas they can have quick access and insight into what's happening with those GSAs without having to actually read the 4 or 500 1500 page reports
0: oh, that's incredible so so just just your opinion are are we going to see acres go out of production because of sigma oh ab- absolutely
1: there's no question that acreage is going to come out of production there are certainly some areas that are are so overdrawn And so overly dependent on groundwater that unless there's infrastructure built, physical infrastructure built to move water to those areas, we're we're definitely gonna see the fallowing of land. I think in some areas we're gonna see the fallowing of land by choice as well by some farmers who can start to perhaps realize more value from the water associated with their land and moving those to higher value crops. So I do think we're gonna see water continue to move to the high economic dollar value crops and we'll see it move off of other properties. We're also seeing some pretty major changes in land valuation as well. So those that are in pretty decent GSAs, the land values are are holding pretty strong. And those in areas that don't have access to alternative water supplies, we're, you know, in some areas 50% reductions in land valuation, which is pretty significant.
0: What what's that land good for if it, it has no water? Yeah, if it if it doesn't get if it if it doesn't have water
1: and they're not growing crops, they can move the water potentially. Whatever allocations there are to another piece of property, a lot of people are looking. I think at solar in some instances. Some of those properties are decent for groundwater recharge. So maybe groundwater banking facilities. Other areas are potentially really great areas to rehabilitate into into wetlands or other types of habit types of areas for species that are maybe endangered. So there are, there are alternatives, and one of the things a number of our customers are starting to look at on the grower side are, are those alternatives.
0: Okay. So so yeah, what you're saying is it's not so much, they're going to go out of production not so much because they're cut off from using any water, it's because they get such a small allocation that it's not enough to grow the crops.
1: And in some cases, it could truly be they're just going to get cut off and they won't have the water available. Yeah. But th- those will probably be fewer and fire between than just not having enough.
0: Okay. It sounds like the team at Aqua Oso is is currently really zeroed in on this problem of, of helping, you know, the bankers w- get the information they need to make, you know, wise decisions when it comes to lending to farmers. What's the ultimate vision? Just from what little I know, I'm, I'm guessing you've got a grander vision here and that's maybe step one in the plan.
1: Yeah, it, it is. It truly is step one in the plan. So, as we think about the next few steps it's helping not just the lenders make better decisions on loans but helping the growers themselves make better decisions from a water management perspective and getting them tools and information into their hands that they don't even have access to today i think one of the one of the downsides to what we're starting to see with sigma and the changes of water in california is that because the data has historically been so fragmented and disparate and opaque It's hard to really make decisions so as we bring that information together people can make better decisions but one of the one of the downsides we're starting to see is a bit of an arbitrage in the california system of larger groups coming in identifying properties that are well suited to have decent water supplies and acquiring those for those water supplies for the future so you can make as many judgments as you want about that but it is happening so our goal is to help disseminate and democratize the data as much as we can to the lenders, to the growers, so they can start making better decisions, not just in California, but in other states. Ultimately, what we plan to be doing and we're working towards is helping not just the agricultural sector, but other industries understand the impacts of water risk on their business. Because water risk truly is business risk, whether it's in agriculture or in mining or in oil and gas or in textiles or in the broader technology realm. So ultimately, we plan to be building analytics across multiple industries, not just the agricultural sector.
0: Right. Makes sense. Well, it, it sounds like you're building quite a team there, too, which I know, you know, it, it takes a lot of upfront capital to to make that happen. What's what's the business case here? Obviously, I, I could see where this is an extremely helpful tool, a very relevant issue for all of us, uh, especially those of us who live in Western U.S. Or, or similar type areas. But what's sort of the business case as far as why this is a good investment that you're investing your entire livelihood into?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I ask them myself that daily, <laughs> Tim. <laughs> I obviously have a lot of my own time, energy, and money in the business, as does a number of the other team members. You know, we've taken a little bit of outside capital. We've been growing the business, fortunately, with customer revenue in most cases. So that's been really beneficial, um, and we've been building the business based on customer input. One of the one of our huge value propositions is that we've built really great trusted relationships with our customers. And we listen to them. We listen to them a lot about what they're, what what they really need to solve their problems, and we found that to be really successful in our model. Over time, as we continue to build the business, we will probably take outside capital to help help us grow, help help us sustain what we're trying to go do. So as we think about things like moving into other states, moving into other industries, outside capital is really beneficial to help accelerate some of that growth and some of that movement. And the business case, I think, on the Really on the investment side, it's, it's, it's twofold, right? One is we have a good business with good economics that makes sense. And so we, we know how to build a profitable organization over time that can scale. We're not really limited in a really small market. We've got a pretty large market that continues to grow. And then on the flip side, it's just good business that we're, we're working towards. Aqua so is a public benefit corporation. So what that means is we are in business to make money but we also understand that there's a social ethos around water. And we wanted to make sure that social ethos was embedded into our company. That also means that at times we're going to do things that don't necessarily make money. Like in California, we launched a free water map with one of the local organizations, ASFMRA, to help people better understand where potential areas of risk are. We also launched a small disadvantaged data assistance program help small disadvantaged communities better understand some of the data associated with their communities. Again, because these are organizations and folks that may not be able to build their own big data sets to solve some of these challenges. And so we think it's important to be able to give back to our community that we're working within.
0: Okay. Yeah. I would think this could be super helpful. Also, you know, developing countries that that deal with water scarcity in terms of planning and, and development. And maybe that's what the NGOs are using it for.
1: Yeah. So like that, that hits pretty close to home for me. When I first started so, I did a three, a three week trip to India and it was readily apparent that, you know, the ability to understand and identify not just water risk, but the associated water data was pretty much non-existent in most rural communities. So we do see the potential benefit of what we've been building and leveraging that in other other areas as well.
0: In the, in that case can you get the data? You know that's what I always wonder with with cool tools like this like you still need the data and I mean can you get what you need to 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 be helpful or how hard is that?
1: That's that's a great question. I mean California and the Western states, there's different places you can grab data from. We've had to do a bunch of normalization and cleaning of that data and aggregation, and geospatial mapping of that data, because it's typically in the context of each other pretty dirty. So it takes a lot of work to to make all of that data work. I think in most, many other countries, I won't say most, in many other countries, it's much harder to get the data because there is no centralized location to go pull it from. So in, in that sense, you'd probably be looking at a bit more of a crowdsourced model Tell people put the data into a centralized location that can then run analytics and decision-making tools.
0: Mm -hmm. On your website, it said said something to the effect of the the old adage of two sources of water becoming obsolete. Can you explain that?
1: Yep. So historically on the appraiser, appraiser side and on the lending side, the question was not necessarily, is there enough water to grow these crops? It was assumed that if you had a well on your property and you had access to surface water, you would automatically have enough water for the property. So in California, before the groundwater sustainability plans came out and before there are any restrictions on groundwater pumping, if let's say you were in a water district and you couldn't get your full allocation in a given year, like happened not that long ago during the drought, you would rely on your well water to supplement the water that you needed to grow your crops. And certainly there's a cost associated with energy and pumping that water from the ground up to the surface and delivering it to your crops. But that doesn't work anymore because the real question now is just because you have a well, question now is how much water can you pump out of that well legally? So the dynamic has changed from do you have two sources of water to what are the allocations of water that you have available to you? Because that's a much different question to answer.
0: Okay. We have a a real entrepreneurial audience for this show. What other sort of interesting problems related to water do you think that we're going to see cool startups come up and solve in in the coming years?
1: Yeah. So we're already seeing a ton of startups on the urban side, right? So it really started with consumer behavior. So similar to the energy side, how much water are you using compared to your neighbors? We've seen that play out with some really great companies on the water utility side. We're seeing a lot of I would say AI, machine learning types of companies coming into the water utility side as well to help identify preventive maintenance on infrastructure, help identify where leaks are potentially occurring within a system because that does account for some water loss. I think there's general workflows around you know how do we get the right chemicals to the right place at the right time on the urban side? I think on the agricultural side, we're starting to see some really cool companies on the precision ag piece. So are you putting the right water in the right place at the right time? by using things like satellite mapping capabilities in conjunction with on the ground ground testing, like soil sensors. So I think those are some pretty cool things that we're starting to see as well. And I think there's a lot of opportunity still um, across the sector for water entrepreneurs to, to build a better ecosystem. I think we're still fairly new when it comes to how we integrate all of those technologies together. So I think that's gonna be an interesting challenge for for all of us, as, as we look to the future, we're certainly seeing that with the broader ag tech play in the agricultural space, with whatever it is, sixteen hundred or two thousand companies all vying for the same sets of data and trying to figure out, you know, which which user interface is going to win. And there's, there's no winner quite yet, I don't think. But it, it, we're going to see the same problems on the water side as well in terms of data integration and and data unity.
0: Right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that the winner is going to be whoever can actually tie them all together in some way or bring them all together in some form. Well, if, if Aquoso is just radically successful in the next 10 years, how does the world look different?
1: Man, that's a wonderful question. I think the world looks different by many in many ways. One, our ideal state is we're helping move water, not just to the highest economic place, but to the highest value place. And by value, that's more than money. In our minds, we think of value as societal value, as natural value, certainly as community value, and then economics is is a part of that. But being able to have a broader perspective on how water is and should be used, which also then leads us, I think, and I hope, and our plan to better policy over time. I think a lot of policy on the water side is made sometimes in a vacuum and simply because all of the data is not readily transparent. So as we get more data... Our hope is we can help make better informed choices on the policy side. That's not as arguable maybe as it is today because people are working with different data sets to make certain decisions. Hmm. And then I think ultimately we'd, we'd really like to be able to see a way in which, and leverage our tools to help communities build more resiliency, just even you know in their own social constructs. So depending on where you live, making sure that you understand what you can do to mitigate as a as a society, as a culture, the water risks that we're starting to face. Because the reality is extreme weather events, degrading water quality, these are all real things that are actually happening. And they're going to continue to happen. So we need to find ways to manage around them. We can't really ignore them anymore.
0: Chris, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm really, really bullish on what you guys are doing. I think it's really great stuff. So thanks for for taking the time to be on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Tim. I really appreciate you having me here. Um, If anyone in your audience has any questions, we're pretty open. Happy to take any questions. People can email me directly. It's chris at aquaoso.com, or you can shoot us a note on our our webpage.
0: Hey, thanks again to Chris Peacock. Go check them out over at www.aquaoso.com. And if you enjoyed that episode, it would really be a big favor to me, if you wouldn't mind, texting or tweeting it to someone else who might also enjoy it. We're now almost 200 episodes into this podcast, and I'm still surprised by how many people who love these topics still don't know the show even exists. If they don't want to listen, I totally understand that, but I'm surprised at how many people still don't even know we're here. And even people I know will come up to me and say, hey, I didn't know you had a podcast, and geez, I thought I was being pretty annoying with telling everybody about it, like most podcasters do, but apparently not annoying enough. Anyway, I'd love it if you could help us out by helping to spread the word by texting or tweeting this to someone else who may enjoy it. Stay curious, stay engaged, and let's support each other through these tough times. We'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.